Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it is uh, once again a real honor and privilege to be here with you all, and I want to say thank you to all of your uh, uh, greetings and, uh, and just wonderful hospitality here in Birmingham. It is, and the prayers, it is something I will take back with me to New York City. And I'm actually leaving this uh, event very refreshed and encouraged and excited about ministry, especially because of the wonderful ministry here at the Advent. It's a real inspiration. Over the last couple of days, I've talked about uh, the themes, three themes that we find in Lent, and, uh, uh, or two themes we find in Lent. Reconciliation, the first day I talked about, and then I talked about salvation. And today I want to wrap up by talking about why we know it's real. And it has nothing to do with an experience you had. It has nothing to do with a feeling. It is more than a feeling. It's a cold, hard fact. And uh, I didn't want to jump the gun and talk about Easter because we're in the middle of Lent. So I thought I would talk about another glorious moment in the ministry of Jesus, the Transfiguration. And I'm going to preach today from uh, Mark's telling of the Transfiguration. And uh, so if you will, listen or follow along. It's in Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. <clears throat> well, Mark's gospel is a real interesting one. It's very short, and uh, it's kind of the, it's basically um, the cliff note gospel. And it was written supposedly by Mark, who heard it from St. Peter. And uh, if you remember in Mark chapter 1, this is all building up. And in Mark chapter 1, if you remember Jesus, it's an action-packed chapter. You know, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens open up, a dove falls on him, and says from the heavens, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And immediately, Jesus goes off into Galilee, the place that the prophet said was a land of people who sat in great darkness, who have sat in the shadow of death. And he begins to call from Galilee, you know, basically the armpit, the backyard of Jerusalem, um, his disciples, and he calls these fishermen to his side, and then, like a judge of the Old Testament, goes in and begins to take on the enemies of God's people. He cures the sickness, he casts out demons. I mean, it is action-packed, and the crowds in Galilee are following him all over the place. But in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus does something so offensive. Uh, Jesus does something so provocative that his popularity plummets faster than a U.S. president at the end of his second term in office. <clears throat> Jesus, in the presence of a large crowd and a paralytic, makes the claim that he can forgive sins. 
If you read Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees basically look at him, and in the words of Arnold Drummond from Different Strokes, they say, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, who can forgive sins but God alone? In that statement, your sins are forgiven, Jesus makes the bold claim that he is God. And in the ears of the religious leaders and the Pharisees there at the time, this is nothing short of blasphemy. Nothing short of blasphemy. This is tremendously abhorrent. And it's tremendously abhorrent in the one place in the Roman world that is staunchly monotheistic. You know, Jesus could have gone to Egypt, he could have gone to Greece, he could have gone to Rome, anywhere else, and he could have said, I am God. And people would have said, amazing, I'm God too. Where's your temple at, you know? (laughs) But in the one place... He makes the claim that he is God, where in first century Israel you would be stoned for blasphemy. And yet Jesus pushes the button. He says, which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And what happens? The paralytic does. The outward miracle confirms the invisible proclamation. The miracles from here on out affirm that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. There's a very specific reason why nobody's getting gold fillings in the New Testament. The miracles are specific. The blind see so that they might see the gospel. The deaf hear so that they might hear the gospel. The lame walk so that they might go forth and proclaim the gospel. And all hell takes notice and demons are cast out because the gospel shuts them up. So the next seven chapters begin to make the case that Jesus is not just any other second temple Jewish rabbi, but is God himself in the flesh who has come to forgive our sins. And chapter 9 is one of the crescendos where Mark makes this point. The transfiguration. Where Jesus is literally, it says, metamorphosized, whiter than any laundry. I mean, that is white. He is metamorphosized into all of his glory. Every cell in his body is shining before Peter, James, and John. This is such a critical moment in the church's story, actually, that the transfiguration is recorded also in Matthew and Luke. And Peter writes about this event in his second epistle. Now, I'm actually shocked at the number of times I've been traveling somewhere with my collar on, and someone will say to me, you a priest? And of course I'll say no. You know, I'm just wearing this as a fashion statement. And uh, of course I am. But the other thing that people have been saying to me and asking me and telling me is they'll, they'll say this thing, they'll say, you know, Reverend, I'm, I'm spiritual, just not that religious. Especially, uh, I get this question a lot, in light of that YouTube uh, viral video where there's this good-looking man rapping about why he loves Jesus and hates religion. And uh, whenever I'm told that now, when people say, well, you know, Reverend, I'm not that, I'm spiritual, just not that religious, I always respond interesting, because I'm religious and not that spiritual. 
And what I mean by that is that our Christian faith isn't governed by emotion. And it most certainly isn't governed by experience. But it is instead by facts. St. Peter tells us in his second epistle, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice what Peter says. This is very important. That they are eyewitnesses of his majesty. St. John writes something similar in his first epistle. In uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, we proclaim to you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is hogwash. We are Christians not because it's helpful, but we are Christians because it's true. And while Christianity and to be a Christian is spiritual, my first point today is this. What we believe and what we confess is not some cleverly devised myth. You know, some abstract, timeless truth about loving people. Give me a break. It is an eyewitness fact attested to by sane men, rational men who had nothing to gain by making this stuff up. That God has risen, God has died and risen from the dead to forgive your sins. Nevertheless, as humans, we put a lot of stock in our spiritual mountaintop experiences. Peter wanted to preserve the moment forever by setting up three tents. One tent for Jesus, one tent for Moses, and one tent for Elijah. Who could blame him? I'm normally not all that emotional. I'm an Episcopalian, but <laughs> part of the frozen chosen. And so uh, somebody once said, you know, you're part of the frozen chosen. And I said, yes, remember, many are called, few are frozen. But, uh, <laughs> but I have had experiences, like at my ordination, and Joe was there where with puffy eyes and a runny nose, I wanted to remain in that experience forever. You know, like Peter, I would have gladly built three tents and stayed in that church forever. One for me, one for Joe, and one for Paul Zoll. But this is the problem. Experiences are rare if they ever happen. And what I see actually happening especially in evangelicalism today, is a lot of people wind up confusing their experiences with God, and they wind up worshiping the experience as opposed to Jesus. And they become these experience chasers, you know, and that God showed up because the G chord was hit right, you know, and we all lifted our hands up at the same time. And we wind up becoming experience chasers and worshiping that as opposed to Christ. I've often wondered what Jesus is talking about with Moses and Elijah on that hill. And I've come to believe that he was talking about his own death and resurrection. Because Moses is the embodiment of the law, and Elijah is the embodiment of the prophets, in which Jesus' death and resurrection brings fulfillment to the law and the prophets, brings fulfillment to the entire Old Testament. And this is my second point. It is wrong to confuse God with our spiritual experiences. As John Calvin, the great reformer, once said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories, and we will make false idols out of our experiences. 
We will make false idols out of our experiences because, you see, sin isn't dealt with in an experience. Death isn't defeated in an inspiring view of God's glory on a mountain. Believe me now, if all Jesus came to earth to do was a shine Jesus shine number, there would be no forgiveness of sins, no life, no salvation, and all of us, including Moses and Elijah, would be lost forever. Hence, the cloud must hide the glory, as Mark says. And this is why Jesus told the disciples not to say a thing about what they saw until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Because it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because before Jesus can be understood rightly in his glory, he needs to be seen hanging dead on a cross bearing our sins. Before Jesus can be seen in his glory, we need him broken. We need him bleeding. We need him dying. We need him buried. Because that's where he saves us. Not in our experiences, but on a cross. In the hidden glory of his sacrificial death, where Jesus would be on Calvary's mount, obscured by a cloud of rejection and betrayal. This is called the theology of the cross, and it is intrinsically offensive to all of us. God doesn't make himself known in things that we can label, especially the good things, especially our experiences. No. Rather, instead, the glory of God makes himself known to us in a crucified Christ. And what that tells us is that the glory of God is hidden in this life. It's hidden behind weakness. It's hidden behind persecution. It's hidden behind hardship. It's hidden behind suffering. And it's hidden behind death. And this is my third and final point. What makes Jesus' cross and resurrection, which leads to his glory, such good news, is that it is not only historical, but unlike our experiences, which actually can be deceptive, it's true. It's true, and it speaks to the real experiences of life. It speaks to your loss. It speaks to your sickness. It speaks to our weakness. It speaks to our isolation, our persecutions, our hardships, our sufferings. It speaks to the ultimate reality of death. And it says that it has been triumphed over. Our lives... They're not lived on the mountaintop, but oftentimes in the valley. And there are doubts. There are difficulties that defy explanation. Prayers that just seem to go up into the ozone. They go unanswered. And into the valley you have nothing but the gospel. A word of promise that God has forgiven your sins in Jesus Christ. Made known in his word preached made known in a splash of water, made known in a bit of bread and a sip of wine. And the truth is, is that when the tough get going, it is only natural to ask the question, is that enough to save me? And it is. It is. Because God has put his name behind it. And God has made a promise to you there that he will never leave you. 
nor forsake you. Let me wrap up with this. God's glory may be hidden, but it is there in those means. It's there in those means, as sure as Jesus is risen from the dead. I promise to you, despite what's going on now, and that promise to you is one day you will see that shining face with newly resurrected eyes. The transfiguration of Jesus shining in his glory is a sneak preview of our glory in the resurrection where with Moses and Elijah and the whole company of heaven you will see with your eyes that glorious shining face of the one that is your Savior. But not yet. Patience. Now by faith, then by sight. Now hidden, then revealed. Now in weakness, then in glory. But always the same Jesus, there to save you, here to save you. And we can with Peter say, it's good, Lord, to be here. Amen. And now may the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen.